Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. favorite time of the week and we have Mark Hodgkinson the CEO of the charity Scope. Uh, Mark and I worked out that we've known each other for over 10 years when we first started working together as uh, executive and coach and Mark's had a fascinating time a whole variety of different jobs CEO Virgin Money, SVP at EMI, uh, a digital director at ASDA, marketing director at HMV, worked with a whole uh, group of the top private equity firms on leadership and CEO of garden centers, uh, care homes, and restaurants. So he's really had a whole cross-section, which in these unprecedented times, Mark, makes you very suitable to have a conversation, and particularly about the impact on the charity sector. Mark, welcome. Good to have you on board. Thank you. Now, let's go straight into um, dealing with a crisis, Mark. You know, we, we've got this pandemic, which is really hitting all those kind of corporations that you've worked in who, who've had good times and bad times, you've had to close chunks of businesses down. Um, you, you've, you've dealt with all the kind of organizations that are being hit hardest at the moment. But what's your general advice about dealing with a crisis like a global pandemic uh, of this scale? Uh, what's been your experience and, and how are you handling it as a CEO of a charity right now? Yeah, so uh, clearly, like all of us, I've never actually faced a global pandemic before. So uh, somewhat of a, a, a new challenge, despite uh, experiences of other challenges before. But uh, I think um, uh, my advice approach has very much been to um, uh, get started and keep moving. Uh, I think uh, it's very easy in a crisis to become a little bit, you know, sort of, uh, paralyzed and afraid to make the wrong steps and so uh, I think you know, the pace is important um, you won't get everything right we certainly uh, uh, are not expecting to get everything right but what we've been trying to do as a team and what I've been trying to do with my leadership team in the current crisis is take the necessary steps we need to take as quickly as possible and uh, hopefully most of those work and those that don't um, yourself up and uh, try again really to uh, and keep mm. going uh, and that brings me uh, to an early experience today when i was coaching a ceo in um utilities company uh, and he said we, we talked about the incomplete leader leading the complete team that this concept that ben and i have talked about before where you as the ceo you accept that you're not perfect but you, you need to get moving. You need to get this momentum, or what we call tempo when we're in the military, where you can move fast in one direction and then change direction without losing momentum because things change. As Churchill once said when he was criticized for changing his mind, he said, when the situation changes, I change my opinion. What do you do? And, and like, you've got to adapt to it because it's moving at such a pace. And in the military, we talk about the OODA loop, observe, orientate, decide, act, and then observe again, and then orientate yourself, then decide, and then act. And you've got to get inside that one when the virus is moving quicker than you are, some of the government changes and the rules and things like that, or the economy's moving, or the charity sector's under 
uh, attack. And he was saying that as leader to say, look, we're going to be moving at pace. We've got to make decisions. We can't stay still. It's almost like a shark. When, you, when you're not moving forward, you will stop and drown. So you've got to keep moving. We're going to make some mistakes. That's accepted. If you do it with the best intentions, if you do it with, with lacking intentions and, uh, and integrity, that's not acceptable. But best intentions, have a go. And if we make a mistake and we have to adjust, let's learn from it and move quicker. What, what's your thoughts, building on what I've just said about your points? I completely agree. Uh, I think um, uh, I talk about course correction. So uh, you you mentioned it there. The, you, know, you go, you, you you plot a path, and you take some first steps. But you know this crisis uh, uh, keeps throwing new challenges at all of us. And I think the government, in particular, response to the crisis keeps evolving over time. So uh, it's really important that you don't uh, just keep playing down one direction, you, you are, I guess, um, uh, flexible enough and maybe brave enough to recognise that you might need to uh, course correct along the way. So uh, uh, that's definitely being required as part of this crisis where things can change on a daily basis. Yeah. And you're the CEO of Scope, which is a charity. You want to just tell the listeners who don't know Scope well a bit about what Scope does and how you've had to completely readjust your operating model in light of day-by-day crisis changes because of the pandemic. Yeah, so Scope is a uh, a pan-disability charity. We seek to um, support the 14 million disabled people that are in the UK. Um, uh, Our strategy is is very much about everyday equality. So um, we seek to ensure that uh, any of the inequalities that exist uh, for a disabled person in their life, uh, we seek to support them and help them in correcting. Um, that can often be around employment, but in just basic day-to-day things like in this pandemic, access to food. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's been one of the most common calls actually we've had uh, during this crisis. So we very much seek to uh, back disabled people um, obviously, one of the most uh, vulnerable sectors at this time in the crisis, um, often facing into self-isolation, um, some often having to shield. So uh, it's a it's a it's a time where you know we've never been never been busier really. The, this is a, it's a sort of perfect storm because our income fell by sixty percent. Wow! At the time the crisis kicked in. Uh, we had to close all our shops, we had to pull pe- people from street fundraising, we had to cancel all our events, uh, and at the same time, our, the demand for our services just uh, took off. Yeah. And How quickly did that develop? Well, within days. Really? <laughs> so, uh, I'm literally, I think, between probably about, I think I'm around the 17th of March, we, um, we moved all of our operations to operate from home. Um, mm. Thankfully, we have a, uh, a, a contact centre and digital environment which enable us to move our operations from home. We've never fully done that before, so uh, that was a uh, bit of an active faith, which thankfully for the people we seek to serve work well. And those services continue to run from home. But then uh, a few days later, we had to close all our shops. So within a week, we were operating from home, dealing with increased demand and... Uh, uh, 60% of our income had disappeared pretty much overnight. And, and, and 
that is just such a huge change for you and and the, the staff and your other leaders to cope with. Um, a lot of people in the good times before this pandemic, you know, they, you know, got to do the risk register and, you know, you know, let's go through it. And it was a bit of a bit of a sort of going through the ticket for the governance. But do you reckon that in the different organizations you've been in, you know, and you've been in a whole variety of cross-section organizations, uh, as someone who's had to go and fix problems, do you think people plan ahead enough about uh, risk and emergency planning and what to do if things don't work out? Ben quoted, you know, how, how in the last call about how people you know, they all, they all think they're going to be brilliant leaders, yet they've done, very few of them have done any emergency planning and really mm-hmm. thought about what they do when it all goes wrong. You know, looking back, honestly, had, had you anticipated this kind of thing? Um, certainly not anticipated a, um, a global pandemic. Uh, um, I think in, uh, in, in, the, in the current situation, we were pretty well placed because we already operated in a very um, uh, flexible environment. Uh, everyone uh, had hot desking. We worked um, uh, from home as well as from uh, from the office. Uh, we uh, embraced partnership working with others, and and we um, invested in technology to enable us to engage with as many people. Uh, you know, many of the 14 million people I talked about earlier across the UK. So, so a lot of those things inherently enable us to move more quickly in this crisis. But I think, you know, often in organisations, uh, business continuity planning, uh, updating your risk register, um, uh, take maybe uh, second order. Uh, and also, I think they tend to be quite... Um, Backward looking in their nature, which is part of the trend, I think. You know, you can you can have a brilliant risk register which assess the risks you may have had to face in the past. But I think for me, a lot of this is more about your ability to be agile as an organization, to be flexible, to um, you know, when I was at um, Virgin in our early days, we um, we started producing five year, ten year plans, and and this was in the phase when digital was just taking off and uh, we very soon realized that there was not really very much a value in producing a five or a ten year plan in our case uh, so we shortened it to three year plans and then we realized that actually things were moving at a much faster pace than that so we became an organization that very much um, worked on the basis of testing and learning uh, championing things and then challenging what we were doing because I think Sometimes when you're at the top, what you think is the top of your game, that is the time to be most challenging of where you're at and what, what's going to come next. And I think, so that, I think, you know, organizations will just need to have much greater agility in the future. And, and yeah. So what, so what, that's fascinating, Mark. So what of the sort of McKinsey's of the world who try and convince everybody to have a, a three-year plan and all this kind of stuff and go from being centralized to decentralized and decentralized to centralized? Uh, you know, what is the window that people can plan over? It's certainly less than 12 months, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, yeah, my view is that I think uh, there's certain things that you might want to plan in detail, obviously in, in shorter time frames. And then I think maybe, it, uh, certainly in my case, I think much more focus around the goals that you want to achieve over a longer period of time because the route to achieve those goals is almost certainly going to change. I mean, 
you know, uh, you know I'm uh, been around for uh, a relatively long period of time now, but you know, just in the last you know, ten years, pace of change has just uh, gone up exponentially. I think technology. It's never going to be as slow as this, is what they say. It's never going to again be as slow as no. this. So I think I think trying to yeah you know, those old uh, premises of long term planning. Um, sticking to your plan for me, I think uh, those days are gone. I think you have to be much more flexible and yeah. have some really clear goals that you want yeah. to achieve, and not losing sight of those is important. That's very good. And and Ben and I were talking uh, the other day about Simon Sinek's book um, with the finite and the infinite game, and that you're playing the infinite game. You're thinking long term with a long-term goal to help 14 million people with disabilities, pan organization. And that kind of goal with an end state of what you want to do and how you greater equality for people um, is regardless of the time frame you're in, you know where you're aiming for. And it's a journey. It's never probably a destination. It's just continual journey. So I think people having a clear burning why they're doing what they're doing and be on purpose rather than off purpose. When someone like this comes cracking in and the military used to say, what's the end state? What's, what's our mission? What are we trying to achieve? And surprises will happen to you all the time. You know, no plan survives the first meeting with the enemy, or in this case, no plan survives the first meeting with a pandemic. And you have to completely adjust uh, and do things differently. Hey, look, that's great. Let's just move on to the, the next phase, which is, You've worked with a whole variety of different people, from Guy Hans to CEOs of Asda and HMV, and, and you've been CEO yourself. What about inspiring leaders in a crisis? Who would perhaps give me a, a couple of people that you've worked with who, who stay super cool and level-headed in a crisis and inspire other people when they're all running around like their pants are on fire? Yeah, so... I guess one of the more obvious ones for me, because I, I did run uh, Virgin Money, uh, is, uh, is Sir Richard Branson. Uh, he uh, uh, was a great inspiration to me when I came into uh, Virgin uh, to leave Virgin Money. Um, I think, you know, from him, uh, I learned a lot about, um, one, the, uh, being, the humility of being a leader, but also I think about how to think how how to think about customers and to always remember that you yourself are a customer sample of one. So uh, you know it's it's very easy when you're at the top of an organisation to think that you are the authority uh, uh, on leadership and uh, what your customers want. And I think he was very good at really uh, demonstrating to us and doing it in his acts as well about how to uh, be in touch with customers. You know, we were, we were encouraged to uh, travel in the same way our customers did, read the same things our customers did, you know, not to have an, a, I guess, a, an advantage position in a, in a, in a remote boardroom uh, as, as, as an organization. So, I, I, I learned to learn a lot from him and I thought you know the the, the virgin train crash uh, example is a good one of a crisis where I think he uh, he uh, handled that really well actually in terms of how he approached that he, you know I think you know I've been more recently I've been in a charity sector and I've seen how others maybe Oxfam say have handled the crisis and it's it's very easy to um, try and protect your own interests I think. Uh, 
crisis and uh, uh, that's almost certainly going to catch you out. It doesn't come across as a, as a really empathetic um, leader and and uh, that's that's probably quite difficult to to achieve for for, for for a lot of people, especially sort of in the in these sort of tough times. How do, how do, do people sort of balance those tough decisions with with um, with uh, being an empathetic leader? Yeah, I think I think if you if you uh, um, uh, I mean certainly for me, I think uh, one of the things I've learned is is around that you need to be really uh, open and, and honest and you know, not be governed by self-interest in those situations. And I think people, if you do that and you do that sincerely, then people recognise that. And therefore, you are able to ask people to make you know, tough decisions. You know, I've, I've asked most of my team to volunteer to... Um, uh, Cut their salaries by twenty percent, so everyone's on eighty percent of the. You know, everyone who's not frontline service is on eighty percent of their of their previous salary, unless they've been furloughed, and they had to agree to that, and they volunteer. They ultimately volunteered to do that because they see mm. that important thing to do at this time of crisis. So, I think if you reach out, yeah, yeah. that's very very key point. We were talking about this before, where. Uh, CEO was speaking to all his staff about you know how they need to have these cutbacks and things like that, and he said, "I must dash now. I've got to get onto my helicopter to fly back to London," and um, that just went down so incredibly badly. What is, what is without mentioning names because you know lots of the guilty parties? What about some really toxic leaders? What should people watch out for with really bad leadership in in a crisis when they, the leaders get quite selfish? You must have worked for some 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 dodgy ones as well as some good ones what have you seen bad in a crisis yeah i, I think it's when people you know, the, the leaders i guess i least uh like and i think are least effective are those that become obsessed with themselves i think it's very easy as a leader as a ceo for everyone to uh, say what they think you want to hear, uh, to uh, treat you as uh, the most special person in the organisation, and I think um, it, you know that sort of heady cocktail is is quite, can be quite uh, corrupting, really. Mm. Uh, so for me, um, those leaders that are, uh, frankly, it's all about themselves. Uh, it's all about what's in it for them. Are the ones that I find uh, have found uh, most tox toxic yeah. and least yeah. effective yeah. yeah let's just finally talk about inspiring teams that you've been in who've handled a crisis um well what what advice would would you share from what you've seen of teams who've worked well together in a crisis that people listening could could take away and 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 check against their own teams and how they're doing or what they could do differently what have you seen yeah, I, th I think um, the, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with a number of really uh, great teams uh, over the years. And I think the, the, the thing that delivers um, uh, a strong team for me is, is, first of all, that I think you, you generally are uh, interested in the people that you are working with and want to support them and reach out to them. It's not, again, not all about uh, what's in it for you. Um, and I think you. Uh, I think the other great thing about really successful teams 
is they're not focused on internal issues. Um, you know, it, it is very easy in a crisis in particular to become completely distracted by the issues you're facing yourself, you know, moving to a new location, uh, having your pay cut, uh, whatever it might be. But the really great uh, teams I've seen really focus on who they're there to serve and who their who their customer is or who they're who they're seeking to support, and that that is a uh, binding force uh, for uh, uh, great teams working together. I think. Yeah, that's excellent. So Ben, over to you. Okay, so just first up on on healthy healthy side. So just sort of looking at your 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 career, you've been in lots of quite high um, pressure, high impact um, positions. How do you mentally and physically stay 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 healthy? I think for me, the uh, actually the most important thing is sleep. Uh, so I think uh, uh, as leaders, we can get uh, seduced by needing to be available all the time. Uh, uh, working every hour of the day and actually my experience is uh, probably the more hours I work the less effective I become uh, and uh, so I remember when I first worked with Virgin Money and, uh, and uh, it, this dates me but the Blackberry was all the thing and I used to leave my Blackberry on at night and we were opening in Australia at the time and I would get emails pinging to me through the night. And I soon realized, actually, I needed to switch the thing off and uh, have some proper sleep. So mm. I'm, I'm a big fan of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. We, the general we um, interviewed uh, last week also said sleep. Sleep is like a superpower. You need to um, be able to get it and, and, and get some really sort of uh, time away. And one of the things he said was, it's really important to actually sort of empower the people around you so you can actually take that break. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, I find that if I have a break, then some of the problems that I was facing before that break that seemed insurmountable suddenly become much easier to solve. So I think it's, you know, it's very, again, I think there's a lot in today's culture that is about the macho style of not taking a holiday, uh, mm. not taking a break. Uh, and, you know, I find, frankly, if you... If you go away on a holiday and you have a proper break, your insight and views on what you should do in your organisation are far greater uh, at the end of that holiday than maybe they were at the start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I sometimes find that just I, I, I sort of look over a few problems before I go to bed, and, and by the time the morning comes, you sort of like got a little bit more of a handle on stuff. Um, okay, second question. So obviously, everyone's. Right now, probably looking at at, uh, at, uh, at money and, and savings and how they sort of survive through through the, the, the crisis. So, um, is there any piece of advice or the best advice you've ever had around around money or or, 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 or advice you give people about? You're about asking us to virgin money, yes? Yeah, so <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, Mark. So the advice I give my kids is do what makes you happy, uh, which might sound a bit trite, but. I think if you're good at something and you're happy in what you're doing, you will find a way of being successful and hopefully that will be uh, rewarding and often, in my experience, it leads to um, um, wealth as well. Um, so mm. I think people that start with the objective of wealth uh, uh, can often end up being quite miserable. and. Uh, Certainly, um, you know, again, when I first met um, Richard Branson, um, 
one of the things he said is focus on your customers and the profits will look after themselves. And I mm. think you know, mm. focus on your happiness, focus on what you're good at, and hopefully uh, wealth in whatever form it takes will look after itself. Yeah, right. You, you can really sort of attack anything you're doing with more vigor if you actually care about it, actually um, interested or, or love it. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, my philosophy is you spend probably more time at work than anything else other than mm. thing that you do. So, uh, uh, you, if, you know, you've got, to, you've got to enjoy what you're doing and I think seek to change that if that isn't the case. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, final part of, the, of, the, of this section is is wisdom. So, is there is there a piece of wisdom that you sort of live your life by, or um, or, or an adage you use or to live your life by or strive for? Yeah, there there is. And I, I I mentioned it earlier actually, but um, I um, uh, I always rem- remember that I'm a customer sample of one. Um, you know, I've I've been privileged to lead a number of really customer focused organisations. And I think when you sit in a boardroom with a team of people, it's very easy to assume that everyone is like you and the products and services you're trying to develop are for people like you. And I think that's when things start to go wrong. And also mm-hmm. you lose sight of uh, who's, you know, why you're there, what your purpose is for. The purpose is not uh, to keep you in that boardroom, it's to uh, really fulfill the the needs of the customers that you're working for and success will hopefully flow from that. Yeah. And, and do you sort of, because there's, there's a lot of concentration of a uh, uh, lot com- companies looking at shareholder value and, and creating profits and creating um, uh, revenue. Do you think they've got it um, the wrong way around? Um, well, I think in the commercial sector, shareholder value does at least drive um, certain behaviours in terms of hopefully some efficiencies and effectiveness. What I what struck me actually in the charity sector, which is the sector I, I've now joined, is that um, we're quite driven by um, top line income. So you know, charity lead tables are set based on how much income you have in the top line, and you're considered to be more important and, and a successful charity the bigger your top line income. But when you look at that, that really is not a very good surrogate for impact and the difference. Mm. You know, you know, some of the people that have had most impact in terms of social change have been a single person. Uh, mm. You can think of many uh, situations like that in our current world. So I think charities are working on an outmoded concept uh, of what uh, success looks like. And certainly it's one of the things I'm seeking to change in the sector at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and that was coming up uh, recently about, you know, is GDP the measure that we should be looking at or should we be looking at people's health and well-being and their general uh, domestic, their, their personal happiness, um, which is another interesting one. Ben, any more from you before we go on to part two? Yeah, just just a couple of questions. Just um, uh, something I'm, I'm really interested in because of your your, your experience in, in marketing and, and um, in, your, in your sort of past um, roles with this type of crisis going on, because I, I deal with marketing teams a, a lot, and they're really, a lot of them are quite lost of, of how they approach the market, how they represent their brands in the right way, in the right tone. Have you got any advice on on, on that? Yeah, I think, yeah, I can see, I can see the challenge with that. I mean, it, it, frankly, I think it's one we're all, all wrestling with at the moment. So, mm. it, it, in my case, in this crisis in the, in the charity sector, I think, you know, people genuinely do want to uh, 
uh, reach out and help. Uh, but um, I think, frankly, there are so many causes and ways that you can help. But I think you have to um, you have to do that in a uh, in a considered way. I think where 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 it works well for me is where people I, I touched on it earlier, but where people want to volunteer, where they want mm. to uh, really come to you. And you know, you, you've only got to look at the uh, NHS. Their marketing campaign said, uh, "Come and help us at this time." You know, seven hundred fifty thousand people, I think, um, uh, mm. subscribed to that. I think the issue then you have is your ability to execute. Because I also was reading today that uh, many of those seven hundred fifty thousand are now uh, signing off the app because they haven't been asked to provide any help. So um, mm. I think. Uh, for me, uh, if you can reach out, touch people uh, at this time with a view to wanting to support your cause, uh, whatever it might be, uh, but then obviously have the ability to follow through on uh, the demand that might create, that would be my uh, my tip for what it's worth. Mm. Yeah. Final, final question. So, so um, obviously, this is something we spoke about before we went live, but... but um, uh, necessity being the mother of invention. How, right. how is this um, creating sort of innovation within scope and how do you think it's going to change the way you sort of go to market or, 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 or create revenue for the charity um, into the future? Yeah, no, I've seen so many times when um, necessity has driven it, uh, innovation actually and uh, I think it's one great thing about working in organisations that need to change is, you know, when you're, I mentioned earlier, when you're at the top of a game you can sit there maybe feeling a bit complacent about how good you are um, rather than really challenging yourself on what you need to do next. Whereas when you're in a crisis, you sort of have to move and you have to start innovating. So for me, I think the ability to reach people through uh, digital channels has been uh, really fantastic at this time. Um, you know, in my own internal organisation, I speak to people uh, every week in the organization, whether they're furloughed or not, uh, about what we're, we're doing as an organization. But we, yeah, you know, we are able to reach out and talk to potentially 14 million disabled people in the UK. So I think digital, uh, the use of digital will only, I think, increase. Um, and I think the, the attitude to, um, workplaces and, uh, how you do work will change because, I mean, you know, we've all, in many cases, got used to work in an office, and if you're not in an office um, very often, then is that or is that mean? Does that mean you're not working? I think um, the pace of work um, on Zooms and Skypes is just been phenomenal. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you, you, yeah, you, it's been crazy. You know, yeah, breaking. It's not. You know, there's no strolling over and getting the coffee in the office. It's you know, great <laughs> time to survive. So. Uh, so, uh, but I, I do think the ability to rapidly get groups of people together to solve the problem um, very quickly has been a really good part, if there is such a thing, of this crisis. Uh, so, um, getting teams to mobilise, make quick decisions, uh, form in different ways, in a less hierarchical, less uh, traditional, you know, structured way is, has been really, really good part of this, this crisis. Mm. It's something that there are many innovations, I think, that we all need to hold on to when we come out of this crisis. That, uh, and I've certainly been, every time I've seen something, I think it's been working really well. I've been noting it down, so I have quite a long list of things that I think we just need to ensure that we embrace as we come out. Mm. 
just lapse back into the old way of working. Yeah, if you can share that list, that'd be great. Because <laughs> I haven't been, I haven't been noting things down. I've got to start noting things down on that that front. <laughs> right. So let's move into into part two, um, Mark, and and talk about all those different jobs that you've done, um, and and your life as you've been growing up. Who, as you were growing up and before you worked into business, who's really influenced you, whether it be teachers or parents or whatever, and what were their values about inspiring leadership? Yeah, I, I, I was quite strongly influenced in my early career by uh, people having a perception that I couldn't do something. So, um, so uh, I, um, when I, I was fortunate enough, I think from a geography perspective, to be uh, be at a, um, a school where I could go to a grammar school um, uh, in my uh, secondary education. And I was flatly told by my teacher that there's no way I would get to grammar school. So I was extremely motivated to pass my 11 plus and, and get there. And then I, when I got to grammar school and was told, flatly told there was no way I would go to Cambridge University because uh, you know, people from this school don't get to Cambridge University. So uh, set your sights at an appropriately lower level. And uh, I was determined to... Uh, to do that too. So I think sometimes, you know, sometimes people, I mean, I, I, as a parent, you have to be careful of that. You, you sort of can set boundaries uh, with your kids, you can set boundaries with your teams and, and uh, not allow yourself uh, to be ambitious enough about what could be achieved um, as an individual. So I think I've taken that into my uh, later life, but not mm. to put caps on people's potential, uh, you know, assume that things won't, they won't be able to achieve things. Yeah. And that's, that's really helpful. And just thinking about, you know, they, there you are, you've gone on, you've achieved a lot in your life. Um, what about, you know, in, in the different challenges you had at different roles, can you think of a particular story or two when you faced a real challenging situation of a turnaround or something really uphill that you had to turn around and what you learned from it? Yeah, I'm, I'm an, I've, um, I, I don't know whether it's right to say I've been privileged to face lots of challenges and, uh, and turnarounds, but um, I, I've had to do a, a, do a number. I mean, there, there are some that where, you know, there's, there's nothing been quite, I think, as challenging as this current uh, crisis, certainly in my, my lifetime. But um, yeah, I think there are, you know, when I, where, when I was, for example, at Asda, um, uh, I came into Asda when uh, home shopping was just, uh, you know, it was still pretty new. Um, supermarkets had been open, opening home shopping environments around the country. Uh, you know, if you were a home shopping digital leader at that time, you could do no wrong because every time you opened a supermarket, more customers flowed through, more business flowed through, your the growth was higher than every other part of the business and you, you just look great. Uh, when I joined Asda, I sort of didn't get my timing quite right on that. And, uh, and uh, I think 97% of the country uh, was uh, populated by uh, home shopping uh, centres at the time I joined. And actually, um, growth was starting to tail off. And supermarkets at the time were very keen on online growth because it was, frankly, the only area where growth was coming from. Um, uh, and uh, we were all chasing new customers. So we were uh, throwing um, you know, vouchers and incentives at new customers. 
And I think the, the, the purpose of this story is to say, you know, don't always assume that what's staring you in the face is the answer, because I think we all assumed that uh, we needed more new customers and therefore we were all desperately trying to incentivize new customers. And of course, all that happened is that customers became very savvy and moved from one supermarket to another, depending on what voucher or incentive they received. When you looked into it, actually the people we'd forgotten about were our existing customers. Uh, So we uh, looked at our whole database and we looked at those people who'd shopped with us for a long time. And when they'd started to stop shopping with us, and in some cases that was because they'd moved, but in many cases we found there was a really strong correlation between the service they were getting um, in this case, short sell-by dates, uh, late deliveries, and their propensity to stay with us as an organization. And as soon as we highlighted that to the operators who are out there delivering on the vans and imp- worked really hard to improve those two measures, our, um, our growth returned uh, to yeah. very high levels. So yeah, it wasn't about chasing new customers. It was about looking after these customers we already had. That is really fill a, because fill a leaky yeah. bucket, can you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you know, uh, my my daughter works for Ocado, for example, which is having a, a fascinating growth spurt, um, particularly the digitization of everything and automation of all their warehouses and things like that. Um, but also, I'm thinking it's many of the the people in marketing that I know or work with. Um, it's quite a challenging time because, in some ways, people can't afford to have you know, three different types of watch strap of the same watch strap or how many trainers do you need? So it's almost like we're beginning to challenge the very essence of marketing. Why are you overselling to people, commercializing everything? And the way out of this economy is for people to buy lots more stuff. But do they need this stuff? So there's almost a an integrity question about the very purpose of marketing to get people to feel they need stuff and they're not happy unless they have lots more things. But we're realizing now as we're stuck at home that actually what matters most is relationships and things like that. How do you as a leader, how do you reckon that's going to square itself in the future, the new normal? you think well, things will be different? Or just go back to how it was, buying lots of stuff? <laughs> I really hope it, uh, I really hope we do uh, take some of the, uh, the good things that have come out of this crisis uh, forward. I think there's, you know, there's a tendency with human nature to a degree to lapse back to how things were when things return to how they were. But um, I do think um, this has probably gone on long enough. You know, I don't think you know, many of us have ever had a change in our lives that has been so dramatic that has probably lasted for so long unless you're you know, facing into some long-term health uh, condition. So um, I think hopefully uh, some of the changes will be sustainable. But for me, it comes back to um, remembering your, you know, who your customer is because you know, all, a lot of the behaviours you described uh, are about organisations trying to maintain their status quo, their top lines, um, rather than really trying to understand what customers really want from them. So you know, an example I gave before we'd assumed we just needed to go and get more and more new customers and we'd just forgotten about looking after our existing customers and so i think yeah if you're in tune with what you're being told and you want to seek that insight and act upon that insight and hopefully that will lead to uh, better quality organizations and great success 
It's how a very have, you, good have you done that in in um, in the past, Mark? Been been so in tune with your your customer because it's, it's sometimes quite difficult to put yourself in their in their shoes and and, and really sort of see because sometimes it's not something that they know they need or want. It's it's the thing that they they don't realise that they that they need that can be yeah, so successful. Exactly, and and I think you know I think in when I first. Um, started in my career i i thought that what i really need to do i understand is what uh, I, I needed customers to tell me what they wanted and then um you get some uh, very interesting outcomes if you just take that approach a faster so, horse yeah exactly. yeah <laughs> um, the, you know maybe the technology inventions uh we've seen wouldn't have happened uh with with that approach i think i think what um uh, tech and digital companies probably have shown us it's just and, and it's an obvious thing to say now but it was far less obvious maybe a few years ago is the importance of data uh, and I think um, uh, really embracing all the data and insights and touch points you have as an organization are important I you know I, in the turnarounds that Jonathan mentioned I've often gone into an organization uh, and actually I have it in the current organization at the moment and and discovered that we've got you know, in, the, in the case of scope we've got 27 databases of you know, customer information uh and uh you know, we need to put invest the time and energy in bringing that together and bringing that insight together when i was at asda we had databases for home shopping for online deliveries for credit cards all of them were separate and so yeah uh, when I was at Virgin, uh, every single Virgin company had its own database of customers. But one of the reasons we launched the credit card is because suddenly we could actually get transaction data uh, from customers and really start to learn about what, how they transacted, what they were interested in, what they wanted to do. So I think um, I think being a company that really wants to really is really curious about its customers and uh, and is prepared to, as you say, not just follow what they ask, but try things and then use the sort of data and insight to see what works i think is a really important uh thing for, for us to do yeah so let's let's come back to the, the, um building on other stories in your experience whether asda hmv emi version money and, and i was particularly interested you had to look after a whole load of care homes you mentioned when we were discussing in the the warm-up session in the green room that um you know the charity and charity sets having a very hard time care homes having a particularly difficult time what did you learn about your experiences uh running care homes and also what do you think is going on for the care homes right now in this country yeah i, I have a um a massive concern for care homes in this country at the moment i think um you know the uh the, the the nature of a care home is that there is a relatively uh, fixed amount of income that comes into that care home on a regular basis. And obviously, at this time of crisis, the costs have just gone through the roof. So, you know, the costs of um, PPE, the costs of the staffing model in terms of people uh, having to self-isolate or shielding uh, uh, are just... Yeah, you know, they really are eye-watering, and I, um, I in my charity role don't run uh, care homes, but uh, I know a number of my colleagues do, and um, you, know, they can't furlough their staff because um, 
they need them on the front line to provide the care, and yet they're having to pay an enormous amount more to ensure that they have PPE when they can get it, uh, and that they are resourcing the care homes adequately to provide the right level of care. And they are just rattling through uh, any reserves they might have uh, in the with a need to do that. So I do feel for the care sector at the moment. When I was in care homes, it was a it, it was a, a better time. Um, our big focus is on well-being. I think you know it's very it's very easy uh, again when you're in an organisation to focus on sort of like the basics of running the organisation. So ensuring the care is provided, etc. But mm. when you're into a care home. You know, it's the last year, it is the last years of your life and um, they should be great. They should be great years wherever possible. So uh, a, a big a part of the focus needs to be on well-being. So we really focused on you know, all the basics of recreation and all the things we should be doing now, really. Mm-hmm. Activities, uh, eating well, sleeping well, but you know, ensuring that you have uh, a full life and you're not left to sit in a bed and uh, and the boxes are ticked to provide the basic level of care that's needed. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And my wife and I care 24 hours a day for her mother, who's with us and not at all well. And uh, I, I really don't want her to have to go into a care home. You know, we're going to try and hang on to her as long as we can looking after her because they're under such strain, the poor old care homes. They're doing a great job. And I've got friends like Jonathan Cunningham um, who runs a care home himself and, and knows how hard it is. Now, we're coming towards the end of our time, and I just wondered what other um, stories or even top tips you'd share with people about inspiring leadership in challenging time, Mark. You know, you've got a lot of different stories to tell, but what would you pick out as a last couple of stories and tips that you'd share with people? I think one of, one of the things I would um, uh, share is... Um, uh, seek progress over perfection. Um, so, um, actually, uh, one of the things we haven't touched on is that I uh, was uh, running uh, rest- McDonald's restaurants in the uh, Nordics. Uh, mm, right, yeah. And uh, it, that, it, that was uh, a really interesting experience because I think um, uh, whatever you think of uh, McDonald's, uh, I think one of the things they're very good at is uh, is is progress over perfection. So, yeah, obviously everyone wants to do the best job they can, but um, sometimes just, as we talked about earlier in the crisis, just getting started, uh, uh, you know, making a move is 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 one of their sort of key top tips, I would say. So, uh, so for me, uh, progress over perfection is is one of the things that, that, that I would say. And I, I think um, another tip I would give... Uh, um, dealing with the crisis, and uh, um, uh, is the crisis is obviously a time when you need to respond. Um, but I think probably there may be the tendency to almost like uh, have a uh, sigh of relief at the end of a crisis. Uh, say, right, uh, that's now done. Um, for me, that is the time to be um, most alert and most active because I think, as we talked earlier. Lots of innovation has come out of this crisis, and it would be a real shame just to lose all of that uh, and, and go back to the way we were before the crisis started. And also, you know, 
the post-crisis consequence, particularly in the sector I'm in at the moment, the charity sector, is probably going to be just as challenging, if not more challenging, because mm-hmm. it lasts for longer. Uh, yeah. uh, the crisis itself. So I think you know, really think about how you're going to come out strongly out of a crisis. What innovations you're going to take with you, and make sure you put time and effort into bringing them to life, not just forgetting about them when it's over. Uh, and, and plan and plan to be as strong as possible. I think plan plan to come out of that crisis as strongly as possible. There's a lot of um, people yeah. saying that they're sort of going back to the to, to what what they used to used to have, like the the, the the status quo. But actually, you should probably be aiming for something better, or or, or, or like you say, take a learning from from this crisis and and, and innovate and, uh, and and aim for it for for something excellent. Full forwards, full forwards. Hundred percent. I think you know it's uh, none none of us would have wished this to happen at all, and it's uh, a very difficult time to to deal with. But if anything good is going to come out of it, I think it's it's given us all the opportunity to really think about how we live our lives, how we engage mm-hmm. with our families, uh, how yeah. we work, and and we should try and take some of those things forward. I think. Yeah, the stuff that matters. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely some reassessment going on with lots of people's lives. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Well, Marlon, thank you so much for coming on to um, Inspiring Leadership in Challenging Times with Ben Atkinson and myself. And uh, you've got so much to share. And I know people will be looking up uh, for information about your charity, Scope. But thank you for what you do for society, you and your colleagues in Scope. And uh, it's great to, to have you on the show. So thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. Is there anything that the that, that people are listening that can can do at the moment um, for for scope or, or, or charities like yourself? Yeah, I mean, if 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 if, so, if they want to go to our website, which I know you've been uh, posting, I've been on, be fantastic. Um, obviously, uh, we'd love any help people feel they can offer at this time. It's a it's a it's a real. Um, crisis for the 40 million disabled people in the UK so uh, every bit of help is absolutely welcome so uh, please do visit the website and see how you can help. Great, thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.